Well, if you haven't been with us for a while, uh, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and we're currently now looking at the life of David. Uh, for the past several weeks, uh, we've been watching as the tension between King Saul and David has simmered, stewed, and has now finally boiled over. Uh, ever since David became a war hero after uh, slaying the, the giant Goliath, uh, Saul has become increasingly jealous of David and has now determined to kill him. Uh, and at first, Saul tried to keep it subtle, uh, secretly plotting and planning David to, to get killed in battle. But since that failed, Saul has ramped up his efforts, and he is now actively and openly pursuing David, trying to capture him and put him to death. <clears throat> now, of course, all along, David has been nothing but loyal to Saul. Uh, throughout all of Saul's subtle attempts to kill him, uh, David has uh, always given Saul the benefit of the doubt, and he's never raised a hand or even a voice against the king. But now it's come to the point where David has no choice but to flee from Saul. And so last week we saw David and Jonathan say their, their tearful goodbyes to each other, and David heads off to, to begin his new life as a fugitive. And so that's where we're going to pick things up today uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. But first, let's pause here and pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this new day that you've given us. Thanks for each one that is able to join us here. Uh, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would speak to us, uh, encourage us through your word, uh, convict us of, of sin and those areas of life that we need to change, uh, and encourage us knowing that you are always with us and you give us those many chances to turn. I uh, just pray that you would encourage us as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So at the end of chapter 20, uh, David and Jonathan part ways. Jonathan returns to town, it says, and David, well, I'm not sure he even knew where he was going to go. Uh, he couldn't return home to his wife, Michal. Uh, Saul had already accused his daughter of, of trying to save David, um, and so uh, I'm sure Saul would have men watching the house still. But David couldn't return to uh, his, uh, his father's family back in Bethlehem. Uh, I'm sure Saul would have guys uh, checking there right away as well. So where would David go? Well, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 1. It'll tell us that David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. So as David tries to figure out where he should go to escape the grasp of Saul, uh, his first stop is in this town of Nob. And Nob was just outside of Jerusalem, and it was known as the city of priests. And that was because it was the current home of the tabernacle. Now, as a mobile tent, the tabernacle uh, actually moved from different uh, towns throughout the history of Israel. Uh, but at this point in history, it was located here in the town of Nob. And since the tabernacle was there, that's also where the priest Ahimelech lived. And that's who David wanted to see. So let's read on and see how that conversation goes. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone? He asked. Why is no one with you? Uh, David had obviously been here on many occasions before, no doubt, visiting the tabernacle uh, for, for sacrifices, making offerings to the Lord, uh, likely right alongside the king or, or Jonathan or at least uh, some of David's other men. Um, someone like David, who is such a, a high official in uh, King Saul's kingdom, uh, he would naturally be accompanied by uh, several servants or, or at very least uh, other officials. But of course, this time, David arrived at the tabernacle alone. And this quickly raised so many red flags for Ahimelech the priest. Uh, we see that uh, Ahimelech was trembling in fear when he saw David arrive alone, and he immediately asked why no one was with him. Uh, this was obviously a very unusual situation, and Ahimelech feared that something was seriously wrong, which, of course, it was. But David was not about to let Ahimelech know what was going on. Verse 2 says, the king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I am here. 
I have told my men to meet me later. So David tries to calm Ahimelech's fears by telling him the reason that he was alone is because the king has sent him on this, this secret mission, and uh, which, of course, was just a, a bold-faced lie on David's behalf. And we don't know exactly why David felt it so necessary to tell this lie. Uh, some commentators feel that David was, was trying to protect Ahimelech uh, so that nobody could accuse him of conspiring against the king. I mean, there's no telling what the king might do uh, if he finds out that uh, Ahimelech was helping David escape. Uh, we saw that Saul had already tried to spear his own son, Jonathan, uh, who Saul accused of sparing David. And so certainly Ahimelech would re uh, receive no less. Uh, and so perhaps David just thought, well, ignorance is bliss for Ahimelech. And so he, he lies to him about why he's traveling alone. And of course, in this point, the, the Bible doesn't comment here on, on the rightness or the wrongness of David's lie. That's, that's not really the point of the story. But of course, the Bible does speak clearly to the issue of lying throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, for example, Proverbs 12, 22 tells us, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who tell the truth. The Psalm chapter 5, verse 6 says, You will destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. You know, the Lord certainly has uh, some strong feelings about those who make a habit of being deceptive. And of course, this shouldn't be any surprise to us. You know, throughout the Bible, we see that, that God himself is described as being the truth. And in him, there is no deception. You know, deception is completely contrary to the character of God. And of course, you know, in contrast to that, Satan is called the father of lies, right? He is a liar and the father of lies. No wonder that the Lord detests lying lips. And as people who are created in the image of God, and even more specifically as followers of Jesus who are being conformed to the character of God, we need to make sure that we're, we're making every effort to practice speaking the truth. Deception is the language of our old nature, but truthfulness is the language of our new nature. Ephesians 4, 21 instructs us, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth which comes from him, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Now, of course, this passage actually goes on to, to give us some other examples of how we are to live as new creations in Christ. But I think it's telling that the first example, the first specific instruction in this passage is regarding our, our truthfulness, that we are to speak the truth, to stop telling lies. Deception is the language of our old nature, but truthfulness is the language of our new nature. And so just as a, a challenging thought for this morning, what language have you been speaking recently? You know, to give some ex specific examples, what language do you speak on your tax forms? You know, is it the language of truthfulness or the language of deception? What language do you speak to your spouse? What language do you speak to your children? What language do you speak to your boss? Let us speak the, the language of our new nature. Let us speak the language of truth. But getting back to our story, uh, after David offers Ahimelech this lie about why he's come alone, he, he then goes on to ask for some supplies for this secret mission. Uh, David continues in verse 3, he says, Now what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. We don't have any regular bread, the priest replied, but there's the holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. Don't worry, David replied. I never allow my men to be with women when we are on a campaign, and since they stay clean even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one? 
Since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence, which was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. So David knows that he's got a long journey ahead of him as he uh, tries to flee from Saul to find some safety. And so he asks Ahimelech for some bread. And of course, the only bread uh, available at that time was this special bread of the presence. Uh, it was placed on a, a golden table in the tabernacle every Sabbath. Uh, and this holy bread symbolized the, the eternal and continual fellowship between God and the Israelites. Uh, you can almost think of it like God was setting the table for the Israelites, inviting them into his presence to, to share a meal with them. That's, that's kind of what this special bread symbolized. And the rule was that only the priests were allowed to eat this bread. Every week when the, the fresh loaves were put out, the old bread was taken away and could then be eaten by the priests. Now, of course, David was not a priest, and so technically he should not have been allowed to eat this bread. However, since David was in need and there was no other bread to give him, and, and since David confirmed that you know he and his men were ceremonially clean, Ahimelech gave this special bread to David. And again, our passage doesn't comment on the rightness or the wrongness of Ahimelech's decision to give David this bread, although Jesus does bring this up a little bit later on in the New Testament. Uh, when, when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields, they're, they're picking off heads of grain on the Sabbath, and, and the Pharisees accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. Um, and, and I won't dive into the story of, and all the implications that are with that, but if you want some, some theologically challenging thinking, go through and, and read that story yourself in, in Matthew chapter 12. But Right or wrong, David is given this bread of the presence. And then we get this interesting little comment in verse 12. And it seems almost out of place. It says, Now Doeg the Edomite, chiefs, or Saul's chief herdsman, was there that day, having been detained before the Lord. And, and, and what's interesting is that that's all it says, right? It's right in the middle of this conversation between David and Himelech. It just mentions that Doeg, Saul's chief herdsman, was there that day. And then the, the conversation you know, just continues on in the next verses. We don't hear anything more about Doeg for the rest of the chapter. It almost seems like it's just a, a random little fact that's just thrown in there. Uh, so why even bring it up? Well, this is actually a very important random fact that was thrown in there, uh, a very purposely placed there, uh, one that's going to have life-changing implications for many, many people, including Ahimelech and David. Uh, however, we're not going to see the impacts of that in this chapter today. That'll happen uh, in the next chapter, chapter 22. So for now, just kind of make a, a mental note of that, that Doeg, the, the chief herdsman, was there at the tabernacle witnessing this exchange between David and Ahimelech. And so with that thought noted, the conversation continues in verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, do you have a spear or sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, the priest replied. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take it if you want it, for there's nothing else here. There's nothing like it, David replied. Give it to me. David continued his untrue story about being on this secret mission uh, and asked for a weapon of some kind since he was, he was so urgent that he didn't have time to grab a weapon on the way out the door. And as it happened, Goliath's sword happened to be at the tabernacle. You'll remember back when we went through the story of David and Goliath that that story kind of ended uh, with David taking Goliath's head to Jerusalem, right? That was kind of a, a weird little thing to talk about. And it would be very difficult to do because at that time, the city of Jerusalem wasn't even an Israelite city. Uh, it was still occupied. It was actually many years later that David would conquer the city of Jerusalem and take it from the Jebusites. So it seems very odd that David would take Goliath's head to Jerusalem. 
Well, with this little bit of information here, uh, it seems most likely that when David went to Jerusalem, he actually went to Nob, to the tabernacle, which was very near to Jerusalem. And, and that's where he took Goliath's head and probably his sword and maybe some of his other belongings. And, and instead of keeping them as trophies for himself, he, he gave them to the Lord to, to honor God. So now, as David is in need of a weapon, Ahimelech invites him to take back Goliath's sword, which David happily does. And it's kind of at this point in the story that you might be starting to realize that David almost seems to be acting a little bit out of character, right? As we remember, you know, the, the bold, faith-filled David that killed the Goliath way back then, uh, and, and we compare that to the David we see now, something seems amiss, right? We're used to seeing David as, you know, noble and, and brave, being filled with, with faith and trust in God, doing what's right, even when it's hard. But that just doesn't seem to be the David that we're seeing now. I mean, now, David's on the run from Saul. He's, he's lying to God's priests. Uh, he's taking the holy bread from the tabernacle that he's not supposed to eat. Uh, he's putting his trust in the weapons of his dead and defeated enemy. You know, what's going on with David? Is, is his faith in God wavering a little bit? Has he determined, like Saul once did, that he's got to take matters into his own hands? Has he forgotten to trust in the Lord? And, and maybe, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe this isn't a crisis of faith for David, but but look what happens next. Verse 10 tells us, So David escaped from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. Now, do you remember who grew up in Gath? Goliath, right? Gath is a Philistine city. King Achish is the leader of the primary enemies of Israel. And David chooses to go there. Now, just think about this, right? David, the one who killed the Philistines' champion, who, who won, he, he, he threw a, a rock, sunk it into his forehead, and then lopped off Goliath's head with his own sword, he is now wandering into Goliath's hometown amongst all of Goliath's friends and family with Goliath's sword strapped to his side. What in the world is David thinking? Does he have some kind of death wish or what? Well, in David's defense... Quite often, traitors and, and defectors were welcomed by the enemy. Uh, it's quite likely that the Philistines probably got wind that Saul was trying to kill David, and it wouldn't be crazy to imagine that David might be willing to flip sides. You know, from that point of view, David would be an incredible asset to the Philistines. I mean, the Philistines knew quite well what a, a, an amazing warrior David was, and, and if he was willing to fight on their side for once, that would be amazing, right? But then again... It's pretty hard to trust a guy who's killed hundreds, if not thousands, of your friends and family. And, and that was exactly the Philistines' concerns. Uh, verse 11 says, But the officers of Achish were unhappy about his being there. Isn't this David, the king of the land, they asked? Isn't he the one the people honor with dances, singing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands? It must have been a very popular song back then. David heard these comments and was very afraid of what King Achish of Gath might do to him. And here again, this almost seems uncharacteristic of David. This is actually the only time in all of David's life that we're told that he was very afraid. The only time, right? When he faces Goliath, we don't see anything about that. When he's running from Saul, doesn't see hear anything about him being afraid. But now that he's, as he's hiding out in this Philistine city of Gath, he's afraid of what King Achish might do to him. And, and again, I don't want to read more into the story than what's actually there, but I just wonder if, if David is afraid now because he has, for this moment, forgotten the faithfulness of God. Remember, God has told David that he will one day be king of Israel. 
that can't happen if King Achish kills David, right? So the only reason that David would have to be afraid is if either he had forgotten or had begun to doubt the word of the Lord. And honestly, to take a look at David's situation, I don't know if we could blame the guy. I mean, David has lost everything, right? He's lost his wife. He's lost his family. He's lost uh, his position in the kingdom. He's lost his best friend. I mean, he's, he's lost everything. Everything that, he, that is familiar to him, everything that he loves uh, is gone. And so you can kind of understand how David might conclude that, you know, maybe God had forgotten him or had abandoned him. But of course, God had not forgotten David, nor had he abandoned him. God had not made a mistake when he told David that he was going to be king. What God had said would come true, even though the circumstances to get there certainly didn't look like anything that David had imagined. You know, I'm sure when David, you know, tried to envision his journey to the throne of Israel, it did not involve being hunted by the king of Israel, by Saul himself, or, or hiding out among Goliath's relatives. But yet, that's exactly the path that God used to get David to where he needed to be. And I think that's a great reminder for us. You know, sometimes we go through all kinds of, of difficulties uh, and challenging situations. We experience hurt and loss and, and disappointment. And it's very easy in those moments for us to think that God has forgotten about us or, or that his promises have failed us. But in reality, that is so far from the truth. God never will abandon us and his word will never fail to come true. Never. It, certainly, God will allow us to go through, through difficult and unexpected paths but he's always with us no matter what, and he will use those paths to get us to where we need to be. Uh, Like Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You know, we can clearly see that in the life of David. God allowed David to go through just a whole lot of terrible and difficult things, but God used all of those things to get David to where he needed to be. And of course, that's easy for us to see, you know, 2,000 years after the fact. You know, hindsight is always 2020. But imagine if we tried to quote that verse to David as, as he's hiding out in Gath. You know, he might have a hard time seeing God's goodness and his faithfulness in that moment. But in the same way, we probably can't see God's goodness and his faithfulness in our moments of difficulty either. But that's exactly why we have these, these stories in the Bible to show us and remind us that God is always faithful. He's always present. And he's always working out his good in our story for for our good and for his purposes. Now, as for David, in in this moment, he doesn't have the benefit, you know, of reading his own story to see the faithfulness of God. All he knows is that he's in deep trouble in the Philistine city of Gath. And so what does he do? Well, it says in verse 13, so David pretended to be insane, scratching on doors and drooling down his beard. Finally, King Achish said to his men, must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. Why should I let someone like this be my guest? So David escaped Gath and or left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So David figures that if, if the king thinks he's crazy, then he probably isn't much of a threat, right? So, and besides, I mean, David's lost everything else, right? Why hang on to his dignity? You know, he might as well lose that too. And so David does the only thing he can think of. And in the lowest moment of his life, probably, He goes around just scratching on doors, drooling down his beard, acting like a madman, and eventually the plan works. And King Aker says, you know, we got enough crazies around here. Get rid of that guy. He sends David away, and then David escapes from the Philistines, and he goes to this cave of Adullam. And I do believe that this is probably one of the lowest points of David's life. You know, 
Um, but yet, when it even though it was such a, a low point for him, unbeknownst to him, this was exactly where God needed him to be. It was actually at this cave that he escaped to where he would begin to gather up his uh, team of mighty men, uh, these guys that would do incredible feats with David throughout the rest of his life. Of course, David doesn't know that. That's, that's getting ahead of our story. For now, David is alone. He's probably very discouraged and incredibly confused. I mean, why was God allowing this to happen? How is he supposed to move forward from this? Well, it seems that in, in David's darkest days, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord gave him strength. David actually wrote a psalm uh, regarding this time, Psalm 34. Um, and, and he writes about how, how he cries out to God in desperation and how the Lord heard him and how God protected him and encouraged him. I'll actually read the first uh, few verses of that psalm, and you can kind of envision David writing this, probably in past tense, looking back at this time. Uh, but it says in verse 1 of Psalm 34, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for even though for those who fear him will have all that they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. You know, it's hard to imagine these are the words of a man who is hiding out in a cave, having lost his friends, his family, his position, and even his dignity. But yet here he was, praising the Lord and proclaiming his goodness. As David cried out to the Lord in his darkest hour, God heard him and answered him, and he filled him with, with joy and, and gave him fresh hope. And God does that for us too. You know, maybe, maybe you feel like you're in, in one of your darkest hours. Maybe you feel like you're alone in the cave of Adullam or, or like you're in the city of Gath, surrounded by your enemies. Or maybe you've experienced the loss of, of friends or family or, or even your dignity. Now, I don't know what your situation might be this morning, but I would encourage you, along with David, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. I don't know how he's going to do it, but God has assured us that this difficult path that you're on is, is going to get you to where you need to be. He makes all things work together for good for those who love him. So cry out to him. Like David, pray to him in desperation. And the Lord will hear and answer your prayers. He will be your refuge in a time of trouble. No matter what your situation, you can trust in the promises of God. God, we thank you so much that we can stand on the promises of God. We thank you that you are truth. And whatever you say is truth. It will come true. There's, there's not even a possible way for it not to. So, God, I pray that as we go through our week, whether it's a good week or a hard week or whatever kind of a week it is, I pray that we would remember that we can stand on the promises of God. We may not have strength to do it in our own, uh, but you have strength, plenty of it, and you can be our refuge and strength in our time of trouble. Pray that we would cling to you. Uh, we cry out to you in our desperation so that you may answer and encourage and fill us with, with hope. We thank you that no matter what path we're on, uh, whatever hard places you take us to, 
we thank you that you're going to use that to bring about your good purposes in our life. Uh, we don't know what those are. Most of the time, we can't even imagine. But when we look back, we'll see it so clearly, your hand guiding us along the way, uh, being refuge for us as we go through the difficult times, but bringing us to the place where we need to be uh, to accomplish your good purposes. So God, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you that you are truth. We thank you for your promises that we find in your word. May we cling to those this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.